Loading Erica's podcast. Five, four, three, two, one. Live from New York City, it's the Erica Finn Show. And your host who gets up close and personal with celebrities from the stage and beyond, Erica Finn. Hi, everyone. It's Erica. Hope you are all doing well on this cozy Monday night. I am really excited about tonight's show. I am here with Tony Award-winning producer Daryl Ross. Daryl holds the singular distinction of producing seven Pulitzer Prize-winning plays and is a proud recipient of eight Tony Awards. Overall, she's produced over 90 award-winning productions, both on and off Broadway. A small cross-section includes August, Osage County, Driving Miss Daisy, The Normal Heart, Raisin in the Sun, my God, all such amazing work, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and Should Have Been You, who, which uh, opens this March on Broadway. Daryl was also profiled in The New Yorker and twice included in Crane's 100 Most Influential Women in Business. Whew, what an impressive resume. Just unbelievable. Daryl, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. And I, Good morning. may I add one other show that you didn't mention because it's my very, very special Kinky Boots. Ooh, oh my God, I love Kinky Boots. Yeah. Yes. We're so proud of yeah, it. There's, that, uh, there's so many to, I mean, so many good ones. When we were like trying to name a couple, it's just incredible, incredible. <laughs> I appreciate that. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, you're a producer, of course, and I'll be honest. I'm sure I'm not the only one out there that feels this way. I, I don't entirely understand what a producer does. Can, it's a question that I get asked. Yes, I can talk about it, and often people are curious. What is that job? Uh, and is it, in fact, a job? Well, <laughs> my best description of what a producer does or what I feel I do is facilitate the work of other wonderfully talented people. It's a way of putting things together, which I've always had a love of doing. It's a way of bringing together storytelling, talented people that put that story out there. The team that surrounds them would, would be designers and people that are in management. It's a it's a real team effort, actually. But the producer is the one who actually is in charge of pulling it all together and starting with finding the material, which begins the journey in any, you know, in any case. Where do you find the material? Is it, does it, I'm sure at this point it probably comes to you. Um, well, there are many ways, actually. I mean, I've been producing now for 28 years. In the beginning, Material didn't come to me. I found material. I went out looking for interesting projects. I would read many plays. I would attend readings. Over the years, as I've become uh, you know, more known in the community, people send me plays, both playwrights and agents. Primarily, I, I'm honored that I receive plays from people I've worked with in the past. So you know, keeping an ongoing relationship is always very flattering. Um, in the case of Kinky Boots, I was actually at the Sundance Film Festival now almost nine years ago, and I saw this amazing little independent British film called Kinky Boots, and I fell in love with the story, and right then and there made the decision that whatever it took, I would somehow get this story on stage. It just struck me as the makings of a most wonderful musical. It had an important story that I wanted to tell. It had heart. It had, you know, a little glam and glitter. It just, to me, so in that case, it was seeing a film. But 
oftentimes it's someone sitting down and talking to you about a story that they would like to write, and I might commission them to write a play. So it's a varied, you know, there are many varied ways that material comes to me. So something like Kinky Boots, when you see, you see it and you you see the film and you're like, okay, I can imagine this as a show on Broadway. What's the next step from there? Well, the very next step for me was optioning the property. And uh, that, you know, would be the, the first legal step. So once the property was was optioned, then my next most important job was putting together the creative team, which would be the book writer, in this case Harvey Firestein. Uh, the director, Jerry Mitchell, and, of course, our wonderful composer, Cindy Lauper, and then adding in all the other pieces. But it starts with finding the material, obtaining it legally, putting together a team, and also, very importantly, finding the partners that you want to work with. Um, In my case, I had approached another colleague of mine, Hal Luftig, who had worked with me before and I thought would like this material as much as I did, and we work very well together. So it's really assembling all the parts and then putting your heads together and sitting down and, and giving the creative people uh, the time and the support and the nurturing to create what it is you you know you hope you're able to birth. Are you involved in the casting of the show? Very much so. Ready. Very much okay. so. Oh, yes. In fact, auditions are part of my favorite and least favorite part of the process. Favorite because I adore seeing all this wonderful talent that comes through. My least favorite because I wish I could hire everyone, and of course that's just mm. not possible, <laughs> and it kind of breaks my heart. It's a tough business for an actor, and uh, I don't know. You know, I try to make my presence in an audition room something that helps people feel you know, valued and respected because we all know that only a very few people that are coming through that day or week or month will be chosen, you know. Um, and I respect actors so much, and I, I understand what it takes to have the fortitude and the confidence to keep walking into rehearsal uh, to audition rooms. So have, have, I say that you with ever, the utmost respect. <laughs> oh, I'm sure, yes. Um, have you ever gone in with, like, a very clear idea of what you thought you wanted and ended up? Um, going a completely different direction in terms of casting? Sometimes that happens. But Mm -hmm. as a producer, you rely very heavily on the eyes and instincts of your director and the casting agent that you've hired to help you on that process. So while I might have come in thinking of a particular type, you know, whether it be age or style or, you know, concept for a person, oftentimes it's a collaborative effort, and where you end up is not often where you think you're going. Um, and that's the fun of it, you know, because there really isn't a right and wrong in casting. It's just who gives you what you feel the character is trying to, to you know, send out there in the world as part of this project. So it has happened. Uh, now, part of being a producer, if I understand right, is also financial backing. Absolutely. Um, so is that coming from, are you helping raise money or are you contributing your own money because you're invested in the, it's like an investment in the project or, how, or is it a combination? How does that work? In my case, and I made this decision very early on, I invest in everything that I do alongside of those people that I bring in as supportive investors. I wouldn't want someone to think that I wouldn't 
risk my own money right next to theirs. I think it's a show of good faith. It's it's um, a show that you believe in the project completely, not only creatively but financially. You're going to put your, you know, your best foot forward on behalf of everyone. And so I do a combination of raising money, bringing in co-producers who then span out and raise money from their groups of people that support their work, and most definitely. Usually my money is the first money, and because it's used for development, it's the riskiest money, and I feel that responsibility is mine, you know, and so that's how I've structured my my producing uh, financial component. There's a lot, so it seems like in the beginning of the show, there's a lot of trusting your gut, right, because it's it's to some degree it's an opinion of whether a show is you know going to appeal to an audience or not how how have you learned to trust your gut well you're absolutely right to say that because i think when producers choose what it is they want to support and get behind it's totally instinctive and everyone has different tastes and everyone has different feelings and what do you think will appeal to audiences uh, i would say personally speaking i do trust my instincts in a way that has served me well. I've not always been correct in that audiences have gone wild for everything I've done, but I have never regretted making the choice, which I mm. think at the end mm-hmm. of the day is all anyone could could hope to um, achieve. I mean, I've tried to be true to myself. I don't do things that don't speak to me. I don't produce uh, plays that have messages that I don't strongly stand behind. And what I've tried mm-hmm. to do in my career is put things out in the world because I'm in a position of actually being able to put ideas and, and stories and thoughts out there for people to consider in ways that they may never have considered. I'm in a very lucky place, I believe, because I can choose to do a play because I feel very strongly that what it has to say is valuable and I want people to think about it. And so I'll do something because I believe in what it's about, whether or not I, of course, no one can ever know if audiences Mm -hmm. will respond. I mean, I've often been considered and called a nonprofit producer. (laughs) And what that really means, in a way, it's a compliment, because I, I will do something that would be considered uh, a project that a nonprofit theater would do because it doesn't have a guarantee. You know, it might be challenging. It might be a little, you know, edgy. It might not be what is the current mode of, you know, entertainment. I mean, an example of that is when we produced Wit some years ago. It was a play that you may remember about a mm-hmm. professor who was dying of ovarian cancer, and everyone said, well, this is certainly not a commercial play, and I don't think you should really do it commercially. But I felt quite differently. I thought this is a way to talk about a very important subject, not only to women but to everybody in our, you know, in our world. We have to talk about things that are frightening and scary and worrisome, and uh, and we have to put it out there in a way that people can hear it, think about it in a safe in a safe haven. I've always said that theater is a safe haven, and it's a place for you to sit quietly in a community of other audience members and contemplate what you're being given on stage. And it's it's a way to put things in the world that I feel 
and this is where instinct plays a part, that I feel are important to be there. I mean, certainly the revival of the normal heart was an example of doing something that most people would not consider commercially viable. Mm-hmm. But it was a very important story to tell 25 years after it was first written for a new generation of people to know and hear. And, and that was so successful uh, on every level, really. And so, you know, you do your best. You have to be true to yourself. Uh, basically, I think most producers try to find things that they relate to and, and then hopefully share them with large, you know, a larger population. Uh, sometimes the critics may get in the way of that being successful. Sometimes the word of mouth is not what you hope to do what you really believe in. Then at the end of the day, you have fulfillment and and you've been true to yourself, which, you know, for me is the ultimate. And I would think, you know, since you're taking on that role of social responsibility, even if a show isn't, you know, a huge sensation, you're probably getting so much positive feedback on an individual level from people that have been touched by it. Which has to it often work. helps. And, you know, when you have something that, let's say, is not successful financially, but is successful in the way you just described, people have seen it, people have loved it, they've been moved by it. You know, people yeah. even take the time to write letters of thanks and call you and say, you know, this was just so important for me to see, and I, I came back with my family members or whatever it is. You know, those are things to me that are precious, really precious. And, you know, you could produce anything, and you have done some films, but you mostly stuck with theater. What mm-hmm. is it that you love about theater? I love that it's live. I love that mm-hmm. you have an experience that's happening at that moment in a certain way that will never, ever happen again, whether it's the combination of of people in the audience, whether it's how you're feeling that day, whether it's whether you had a good day, a bad day, where your emotional heart is at that moment. It's just something that's so exciting to me and and so thrilling that it, there's nothing like it. There is nothing like it. I almost don't have words for it to sound, you know, intelligent about why I love theater. I grew up on theater. You know, I was... Um, I was born and raised in New Jersey, so I was close enough to come to New York. And when I was, you know, my parents would bring bring me to see musicals primarily with my sister. But when I was old enough, I would come by myself. And I would go to a matinee by myself and sit there as if I were in my own world, which I was, literally, and soak it in and just feel something that was kind of indescribable. But what I, but I knew what I felt was something that was very special, very unique, and expanded my my mind, my life, made me feel things and think about things. And so, you know, going forward in my life after I was married and raised my children, I had been working in another field. I was a designer, interior designer. I I had a long think with myself and, and really decided that the next chapter of my life was going to be somehow, some way, in the world of theater. And mind you, I had no idea what that was going to be. I didn't train for this. I didn't have a mentor. I didn't work in an office of a producer. I just kind of became that Nike commercial from years ago, and I just did it. And I <laughs> never regretted it. <laughs> so how did you? So how did you even get started? Well, the first thing I did 
was introduce myself to different nonprofit theaters as a person who would like to learn more, be on their board, see if I could help them, you know, in their in their various uh, projects. And uh, I met along the way this most wonderful Richard Maltby and David Shire. And uh, I was working at the time at City Center when they were beginning this wonderful program that we now know as Encores. And it was some years ago, well, 29 years ago, actually. And Richard Maltby was hired as the, you know, professional to help them guide through this process. And we became friends. And one night he said, you know, David Shire and I have written this this uh, little review downtown at a club called 88s in the village. And would you like to come down and hear the songs? And I said, oh, my God, yes, I would. And that evening kind of changed my life professionally. It was a series of songs that they had written about going through life chapters, and every song was its own little story. And I said after the evening of listening to these songs, you know, I do think this could make a wonderful, a wonderful show. It was just on for a few nights downtown in this club. And they said, really? I said, yes, I do. Would you, would you like trust me to do something with this? And they did, and it became closer than ever which I then uh, was able to have Williamstown do that very summer, and then we brought it into the Cherry Lane Theater. And this was in the 1989 season. Uh, and it was a wonderful musical review. It has songs that are still sung to this day by, by people that come in and audition. Happily, it was recorded at the time by RCA, and so the music is known and played, and, and the songs still have resonance. Uh, it's a wonderful album if anybody ever wants to hear some some very uh, very special songs. So Closer Than Ever started me off. From there, I went on to produce The Baby Dance, which was a play about adoption. And it was not well-reviewed, but it was very well-received by audiences. It taught me a good lesson that you must believe dearly in what you produce because not everybody will love it. And then you mm-hmm. have to fight the good fight to keep it going, and that lesson. So really, search for well. what you love, not for a winner. Just find what you love, and then hopefully it will be a success. But you never know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. You never know what's a, a winner, and what does it mean to be a winner? You know, there are so many yeah. categories to check off in that winner circle, so to speak. I mean, for me, you know, I always say theater deals in a different currency. It is not always a financial currency. Yes, you need to be totally responsible for your investors, and I am very responsible. But you also have to know that there are other ways that theater becomes successful. The longevity, where it goes after it appears in New York, how many people's lives are touched by it. It's endless. It's not always about the money. I know people don't want to hear that, but it's not always about the money. No, it's not. But you, I mean, you have produced some inc- a ton of incredible productions, and you've even won a Tony Awards for producing. Which one of those is the most meaningful for you? Can you even pick? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's like choosing your favorite child, which is absolutely <laughs> impossible. Um, I would say, if I had to answer, if you were really holding me to the fire, I would say that at this moment it's Kinky Boots, because I really did. It came from my idea to make it happen. You know, I mm-hmm. I envisioned this 
and I was so struck by it when I saw the movie that I, I feel I really nurtured it in a way that perhaps it might never have come to light and might never have happened. So I feel very, uh, you know, I just have nur- nurtured it through the workshops and the readings and the putting it all together. I guess for me it would have to be that. And the story that it tells is very near and dear to my heart, which is what started it in the first place. It's a story really about accepting oneself and accepting other people for who they are. It talks about the father-son relationship in a very meaningful way and personal way for me. Very it talks about, Yeah, it talks about being yourself and being true to yourself. We all try to do that. And uh, those three particular messages, which are all wrapped up in kinky boots, uh, is everything I've tried to make my career about in one way or another. So I guess that would be my answer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love that. I love Kinky Boots. Phenomenal yeah. production. I totally agree. It's touching and it's funny and it's heartwarming and it's uh, kind of you kind of leave just feeling invigorated and like uh, freer to be yourself. Yeah, um, free to be really, yourself. And it, the other yeah. thing about it that is so wonderful, I think, is that it has such joy. You know, when when you've gotten to through the story to the end and you see this wonderful finale, you just feel joy in your heart. And it's fun and, and happy, and, and yet you've been through the journey with all of these characters that you come to really care deeply about through the, you know, through the show. And then you're on your feet and just feeling, I can leave this theater, there's joy in my heart, uh, and hopefully people will feel a little more empowered to be who they are and mm-hmm. go for what they want and you know find their way in life in a way that is I hope and I believe very inspiring. It, it absolutely was. I mean, for me personally, it absolutely was. Um, you you also were on Crane's hundreds of most influential women in business list twice. How did it feel to be on that list twice? Uh, <laughs> it was a very nice honor, I have to say. Yeah. You know, um, I was on a list that included some wonderfully powerful women that I have admired through the years in you know in their various fields of business and finance and and it just felt kind of unreal kind of surreal because I don't I don't really think of myself as powerful I think of myself as influential if anything mm. only mm-hmm. through the work I do not you know just through the work I do I have become influential and there's nothing uh that I'm m- more proud of than that uh power is a funny word and maybe just being a woman of a certain age growing up at a certain time, power was not something that I uh, dreamed of or even thought was, you know, do me or, you know, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. think of it as the cloak that I wear. I don't think of that. I think of, if anything, I wear, uh, I wear a cloak of perhaps influence and hopefully respect. You're married, and you have a son, Jordan, and a grandchild. And a daughter. How is, oh, and, and a son, and a daughter. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay, you have two kids and a grandchild. How and four grandchildren. You, four grandchildren. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, we need to update our records. Yeah. All righty. <laughs> um, how have you been able to balance having a family with your career? I think it's always a struggle for women. Well, it really wasn't a struggle for me at all because I started my career later in my life. And in mm-hmm. fact... Um, my son Jordan, who is now very 
well-respected and, and doing wonderful work in theater, uh, was with me when we first did Closer Than Ever. We went to Williamstown together that summer. Um, that was kind of his summer camp. And my daughter, who is four years older than Jordan and the magnificent mother of my three grand baby girls, uh, is a social worker. And so when I started working, my my children were in school. They were on their way. I was um, I was really not challenged in the way that some women are at this point. And I took Jordan with me. Wherever I went that had to do with theater, I introduced him to the world that I knew he loved, and we shared that. And as he was growing up, and as I was building my career, we had that together. And that was a very important aspect of of my being involved in theater, because I knew it was something we would share and be able to, uh, to have in our lives forever. And my daughter, who has, you know, obviously gone in a different path uh, of being a social worker and, and a wonderful, wonderful mother, you know, uh, was always, you know, in my life and, and would enjoy theater as well. It was not her career choice, but we shared theater in my family. It was what we love to do. And so the challenge of it was different for me than it was for other people. And I would say it's because I started later and my children were older. And it's it's inspiring because, you know, it's like people think, oh, once you've had one career, you can't have another, like, you know, to start later. How old were you when you started your second career? I was in my mid-40s. Yeah, so that's that's inspiring, like, for sure. Well, I think, you know yeah, I mean? I'm glad that you say that because I, mm-hmm. I always, I speak to women all the time who, who say, God, it's just, you know, I don't know if I could do this. I've always wanted to do this. And my answer is, well, why aren't you trying it? And they'll say, mm. because I'm afraid. It's too late. I'm afraid. I say, well, fear is the biggest detriment. And I think you would feel more regret if you didn't try something. Um, and so I encourage women to go through new chapters in life and, and to try to figure out, first and foremost, what it is that you love to do. And that could be in the volunteer world. That can be in the business world. That can be in any world you choose. But what is it that you really love? Because Many women are unfulfilled, and I believe it's because they haven't decided what it is that would fulfill them. You know, they just go sometimes along the path that we are given. And it's always, I think, if you can figure it out and give it a try, you never know what can happen, you know. And I think when you're older, you have a different sense of what it is you need for your life, and you have a better sense of being willing to try something, being willing to go for it, um, not in an aggressive way necessarily, but in a way that, you know, my husband always likes to say, tick-tock, tick-tock, life goes on. <laughs> you know, yeah, life goes yeah. on and then it stops. And so if you don't give things a run and try to to accomplish, well then, you know, tick-tock, it's over and you haven't tried. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Do you think maybe we get less fearful of failure as we get older? We're more just willing to go for, uh, you know, follow our passion? I think we should. I think we should feel that way. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that women do. No, I -hmm. think sometimes women are getting more afraid as they get older because, Mm. um, you know, there's more at risk or, you know, it Mm. doesn't feel good to fail. It doesn't feel good Mm. at all. But, you know, failure is just the word. Um, 
I like to exchange that word for challenge or mm-hmm. chapter or Love anything. That. Yeah. 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 Love that. Um, I know you're a dog lover. Yes. I, I'm a dog <laughs> lover, too. We have a show mascot, York, Cody the Yorkie. It's my dog. Um, how many dogs do you have? Well, I usually have two. Mm-hmm. Leo, my most amazing dog, died at 19 years old. He died a few years ago. I still Aww. have his sister, Lucy, who is going to be celebrating her sweet 16th birthday next week. Wow. What are you um, feeding these dogs? <laughs> uh, I feed I'm these dogs um, real food, actually. They eat, okay. They eat very well. They eat vegetarian for the most part. And... Um, I just adore my animals. I grew up with with a father who adored animals and was such a caring, beautiful person. And he taught both my sister and myself to just, you know, um, honor and respect animals. And dogs were always in our lives. We grew up with collies actually in New Jersey, and and uh, we've always I've never I've never had a day without a dog in my life, and sometimes two. <laughs> And I heard you dedicated a park bench in uh, Central Park to Leo. Actually, I did, but it's to both of the dogs. And I, I dedicated it before Leo passed away to dog heaven. It was just to celebrate the fact that we loved walking in the park together. And we Aww. ended up just wanting to do something nice for the conservancy of the park, which I am a, a huge fan of. And I use the park often. I find it a beautiful a beautiful solace and a good place to clear your head and a good place to sit and read a script and just a good place to be back in touch with nature. And so the bench was dedicated to Leo and Lucy. And it's funny, too, because people walk by that bench sometimes and they say, God, I wonder if that's that Leo and Lucy I keep reading about in the Playbill bios. (laughs) In my biography, I always thank Leo and Lucy (laughs) for their love. Where uh, where is the bench? Where in the park? Uh, the bench is on seventy nine. It's on the seventy ninth Street East Side entrance to the park. Okay, I'm gonna look for it next time I go. You'll to the find park. it. You'll find it. It um, overlooks Cedar Hill Park, which is so interesting because when I grew up in New Jersey, I lived on a street called Cedar Hill, and I was walking in the park one day and I was looking at a map as they have of Central Park, all the different names of the glens and the hills. And the, and there was Cedar Hill, which was insane. And that's where my bench looks at. So Now, you also did a documentary called My Dog, An Unconditional Love Story. Yes, I did. It was an effort to bring awareness and visibility to animal shelters. And what I had accomplished was... I think pretty terrific because I asked friends of mine, some of them well-known actors and people in the world that I thought other people would be interested in in hearing their stories, you know. And all of my friends had that I asked to be in the video were more than willing because any money that was made from the documentary went to the animal shelter of their choice. So it was really a way for them to give back. And um, they talked about their relationship with their dogs. Basically, the question to all of the subjects in the film was very simple. It was, what's your relationship with your dog and how has your dog enriched your life? And people went off in the most amazing places. You know, they told stories that were very, very moving and very telling and some were just funny and 
and but very personal and very candid. It's a wonderful film. It's really wonderful. It's just it was a gift in a way that I just wanted people to be able to share their stories and in a way encourage people to adopt dogs. So that's what it is. It's called My Dog, an Unconditional Love Story. A question I like to ask all my guests, what's one thing you would like to tell your 15-year-old self? What one thing would I like to tell my what age? 15-year-old self. I might say to myself, have confidence Mm. and believe in yourself. Don't be timid. Be respectful of people. Be kind. But have confidence. Mm. Love it. It's almost time to go, but before we go, I have a little game that I play with everyone called 60 Seconds Speed Through. I'm going to rapid fire some questions at you, and we have 60 seconds to get through as many as we can. Sound good? Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Favorite vacation spot? Uh, Any place near the ocean. Would you rather be invisible or able to fly? Invisible. Morning person or night owl? Definitely morning. One Broadway show you could see over and over again? Kinky Boots. The first Broadway show you ever saw? (laughs) Uh, Peter Pan. (laughs) (laughs) Your favorite snack? Almonds. How do you de-stress? Oceans or mountains? Ocean. What's on your iPad right now? My schedule, my calendar, (laughs) (laughs) my my affirmations, my Oprah and Deepak medications. (laughs) Uh, Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel? Jimmy Fallon. One way you live life to the fullest every day. Uh, I'm grateful. 60 seconds. Awesome job, Daryl. Thank you so much for being with me today. This has been wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure being with you. Oh, thank you. You can find out more about Daryl Roth and Daryl Roth Productions at Daryl, D-A-R-Y-L, RothProductions.com or follow her on Twitter at Daryl underscore Roth. Thanks for tuning into the Erica Finn Show. Follow us on Twitter at Erica Finn for behind-the-scenes pics and info on upcoming guests. Until next week, have a good night, everyone. You have been listening to The Erica Finn Show. We would love to hear from you. Contact the show with any guest requests or comments at the Erica Finn Show at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter.